Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Well, we're uh, still in our sermon series called Clarity this week. This is the fifth week, and as you may or may not know, we're going through an almost year-long, overarching series going through the book of Mark, through the gospel of Mark. We're splitting that up into six mini-series that kind of go along with the different movements of the gospel, thematically uh, bunching them together to help us bring some focus to the different stages or periods within the book. And this one is titled Clarity. Um, and so if you, if you haven't been catching up on these, I'd, I'd encourage you. Uh, they're all online at our website, also Facebook. The live service ends up being posted on there after service, um, but it would be an awesome opportunity to catch up and make sure you're, you're in the loop with what we have been talking about. But today I want to I share a story as we start um, in, the, in the way of traditions. I, I find it fascinating to talk with my friends and other people about like maybe family traditions that they have. Have you guys ever done that? Like just ask like, hey, what's a family tradition you have? What's something that your family does and has done as long as you can remember, but you don't necessarily know why? You ever, you ever have these conversations with people? I actually was having a conversation with a friend that I hadn't talked to in like three years this weekend, and we talked for a good hour and a half. And he brought up this, as we were talking, just kind of traditions, and I was talking about what we are going to be preaching through today, and he shared this story about how he got married, and when he combined his life with his wife's about four years ago, things start to come up in the way you do things that, like, people will ask, your spouse may ask you questions, like, why do you do that that way? And you're like, well, because that's how it's done, duh, right? Like, when you're combining two lives, two family histories, and And his wife was really confused why every Thanksgiving their family cut the turkey lengthways right in half, put it in two separate pans, and cooked it in the oven. I was like, well, that's that's fair. I told him that she would question that. I haven't seen that before either. And he's like, well, because we've always done it that way. And she said, well, that's not normal. Why? And so that that got him to ask some questions. And so he goes to his mom and he's like, mom, why do we always cut the turkey right down the middle, put it in two separate pans, and then cook it in the oven? And she's like, I don't know. That's just how we've always done it, as long as I can remember. So he goes to his grandma, and he's like, Grandma, come on. Help me out here. Why on earth does our family cook their turkey this way, where we cut it right down the middle, put it in two different pans, and cook it in the oven that way? Like, we don't need to do it that way. I haven't seen anyone else do it that way. Why is that how our family does this. And so she responded and she said, well, back when I was a child, our family was very, very poor. And our oven was so small that we couldn't fit a whole turkey in it. But it was meaningful for us to gather as a family and have that like Thanksgiving turkey. And so the only way we could make it work was to cut that sucker in half, put it in a pan, cook one half, and then cook the other half. And as time went on, Now we put both in at the same time on different racks, but it's still cut in half because that's just how we've always done it. It was almost a coping mechanism. It was a, hey, we want to have this as part of our family, and so this is the way we make it work. It was something that was a tradition that was birthed out of necessity. 
It was birthed out of a place where they were just poor. They didn't know any better like, or have any better way to do it. And so this is how their family's done it for years. And then it gets to him and he's, it, you know, I have no clue why. Even his mom, I don't know why. That's just how we do it. So this tradition in their family was born or birthed out of a lack, out of a need to find a way to make things work. Not necessarily because it was right or because it was ultimately the best way, but at some point along the history of this family, somebody adapted. They found a way to make it work, and it became a tradition. And then to him, like I said, it was just, this is just the way we do it. This is just the way we do it. So as we read through the Gospels, we see many instances where the people that are engaging in religion, in faith, and in community did stuff just because it was the tradition of the elders. They may not know why, they may not know the ultimate reason or how that came about, but they simply did it because it was tradition. It may have been the best way that they knew to do things in the lack of the presence of God or before Jesus had come, but this is just the way they had always done things. And today we get another glimpse at where at this moment where Jesus calls for a transition to pursuing truth and what he says, what the word says over the tradition and this mindset of, no, that's just how it's done. That's just the way that we've always done it. And he's calling the people to transition from pursuing tradition to pursuing truth, what the word says, what he says about how things should be done. Jesus is turning the current religious, prideful, legalistic practices of the culture on their heads, and he's calling for clarity in what matters most to God, the matters of the heart. And so today, the title of this message is Clarity on Heart Matters. The heart matters. That's what we're going to be talking about. And as we do that, I'm going to urge you to flip to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be reading the first 23 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be up on the screens to our right and our left. But let's go ahead and read through this together. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God's order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your mother and your father, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. 
Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd bring clarity to us this morning. We pray that you would help us to apply what you would have us take from your word. Father, would my words be from you? Would your Holy Spirit speak through me and to my family here this morning? God, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. So, a little bigger chunk of scripture than we've been going through the previous weeks. So, we are in no way going to cover every question that this may have brought up in your mind. But we are going to cover what I believe God has for us this morning. Starting out, I think it's worth acknowledging there's, there's two main separate parts here. And um, especially in these first 13 verses, there's this accusation by the Pharisees and then Jesus' response to the accusation. He receives this accusation, they're coming at him, and then he has his response. Now, like we've read previously in the gospel, we read that some of these Pharisees and teachers of the law come from where? They come from Jerusalem. Now, this is important that we understand this because he's drawing a correlation between other times when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and these people have come from Jerusalem, the religious hub that is out to figure out Jesus and make sure that he is shut down in what he's doing. This is the religious hub in conflict, in tension with Jesus. And Mark starts out making sure you know, hey, here's those people coming from Jerusalem again, trying to pin Jesus in the corner and shut him down trying to discredit him, trying to take away his voice to rid themselves of this religious revolutionary that is in their midst. And as we've seen them before, the disciples don't make it too difficult for them because right off the bat, they're eating food with unwashed hands. They have not done their ceremonial washing and they just go right at it. They're eating their food and these Pharisees and teachers of the law highlight it and they come at Jesus. They're like, why? Are your disciples doing this? Clearly, you have no respect or reverence for the law, for the religious practices, and therefore us, who are the teachers of this law from Jerusalem. And it heightens the conflict in this moment. You see, the washing of the hands wasn't a hygienic issue. It wasn't like a, hey, you need to wear a mask and wash your hands to keep everybody safe like we're dealing with now. This was just about ceremonial religious practices that they were concerned with. It was simply a legalistic religious, traditional checkbox for them that they were frustrated with. And Jesus responds, quoting Isaiah and calling them hypocrites. Now, hypocrites, one of those words, there can be a lot of different contexts and meanings, and you may throw that out at specific instances with a meaning that you're attaching to it. So it's important to understand what it means here. The original word hypocrite originally meant to play actor. 
And it refers here to people whose worship is merely an outward expression and not one from the heart. So when he's saying like, hey, you're a hypocrite, he's saying, you're just a really cruddy actor right now. (laughs) Like, I see right through it. You're trying to play like you are religious, like you have faith, like you are this good, upstanding religious leader, but it's all acting. This isn't coming from your heart. It's just simply a behavior that you are exhibiting. Though this term is common in the book of Matthew, it's used 13 times there, Mark uses it only once. This is the only time in the gospel of Mark that that word hypocrite is used. And in saying that Isaiah had prophesied about them, Jesus doesn't mean that Isaiah had in mind these exact Pharisees and teachers of the law when he originally wrote these words, but that his denunciation of the religious leaders of his day, Isaiah's, fit for those of Jesus' day. He's saying, hey, y'all are in the same camp as these guys Isaiah was talking about. He's lumping them into the same camp. He's putting them together. And this Isaiah text is basically saying that their traditions and regulations pay mere lip service, but show no true heart for God. Their outward appearance of piety is a lie because it's not accompanied by a total life of commitment to the one who is the true object of religious devotion. They're just acting like religious people. They're just acting like they live these holy lives. It's not coming from their heart. And Jesus goes on and he contrasts the commands of God and the traditions of men, the commands of God and the traditions of men, and tells them they are, in fact, adhering more to the traditions of men than the truth or the commands of God. It's clear that this body of Jewish tradition has failed to get at the heart of God's commands. See, they designed it to kind of try to fence in the law so that people wouldn't get too close to it, to keep people safe. And it's like, no, we're going we're gonna to put this fence around to keep you in a safe place so you don't get too close to the edge and fall off the proverbial cliff. That was the intention so that people wouldn't infringe on the law. But however, in practice, the Pharisees were abandoning God's law while holding fast to human traditions. You see, they may have had good intentions when they originally had this oral tradition of the law or the Mishnah because it wasn't written yet. They may have had good intentions like, hey, we really want to protect our people. We want to keep them safe. God takes this stuff serious. So we're going to like put a buffer, a demilitarized zone, if you will, like just this area around it, like just stay as far away as you can. But in that, they just ended up handing down traditions instead of truth, generation after generation. Jesus then gives an example of honoring parents, and he highlights how they have found a loophole through their tradition in order to utilize it to get around the commands of God. Jesus' tone at the end of verse 13 is telling them, you do many things like that. He's saying, yeah, this loophole that I'm highlighting that Moses said to do this, but you guys have found a way around it. Like, this is just one of many. You all do many things like this. You find a way to utilize your tradition to circumvent the heart of God for his people. You do many things like that. Then Jesus calls the crowd to him. They're all observing and seeing what was going on anyway. So now he says, all right, come on in. I got something to tell you. And he makes a declaration. He says that nothing from outside a person can defile them by going into them. The food they eat, ceremonial washing or the lack of it, none of that. He says that rather it's what comes out of a person or what comes from within them 
that defiles them. Then Jesus leaves the crowd and goes into a home. We don't know whose home. There's speculations. But he goes into a home with his disciples. And they ask him about this teaching or this parable. And his response very clearly highlights his frustration with the density of their understanding. Like, once again, he's like, what is your guys' problem? Because they just don't get it. And if we go back throughout this, what we've read so far in the first six chapters of Mark, there's time and time again where Jesus is delivering a teaching. He's delivering a parable and he says, have the ears to hear. Listen up because if you don't get this, then the truths and the glory of the kingdom of God cannot be for you. Listen, you need to understand this. And then once again, he gives this teaching, very simple teaching, but because it is paradigm shifting to the cultures and traditions that they're coming up in, they're like, huh, I don't get it. It's just like they, they don't comprehend it. It doesn't sink in. And it, he, his frustration is highlighted here. But he's gracious, and he goes on, and he explains to them. Nothing from the outside can defile a person because it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomachs. He directly tells them that it's the heart that matters. It's the condition of the heart and what manifests itself out of that and the outpouring and the living of your life that is an indicator of the health, the faith, the goodness, and the holiness of a person. What comes out of a person defiles him. He goes on, it's written from with, or that it comes out of within. Out of a person's heart, evil thoughts come, as well as this list of other sins or manifestations of a sickened heart condition that he ends with. He lists them off, rapid fire. And then Jesus concludes stating that all of these evils come from inside and they defile a person. So that, that 23 verses, that's just kind of your summary. Here's a few, few things that we need to take from that. Here's what is going on. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? First is we need to recognize that there is a significant focus here on observing truth over traditions. Like there's just no way around it. Jesus is clear that truth takes precedent over traditions. Religious, ritual, and legalistic traditions have taken over them li their lives, and it's actually been enslaving them rather than freeing them. Again, if we think back to what their intentions might have been, it's like, we want to protect you. We want to give you freedom and keep you too close from the edge of these laws. But it's actually enslaved them. However, they're blind to their own self-imposed bondage, so they challenge Jesus with this air of pride, with spiritual superiority or self-righteousness, and they ask him, why don't your disciples obey these traditions of the elders? And they can't cite a scriptural justification for this practice, but it just, it matters to them. This is a tradition, and they're just appalled that he would not be respecting and observing that. Because these Pharisees and teachers of the law, these legalistic folks, they perceive themselves to be firmly established in their religious right to uphold these traditions and these religious rules. But Jesus and his disciples weren't from the same camp. They didn't see things the same way. I think we could acknowledge that there's likely some, some good intent to religious hand-washing, namely to remind Jews that, that they were unclean before God. Like, hey, you're unclean before God, so there's a ceremony, an expression of, of, of washing, becoming clean. But they were completely off base as to the source of their true impurity. If they just think, oh, we do the ceremonial bath, and we go through, we get clean, and now we're good. Like, you're missing something, right? Because it's the heart 
that matters. Their problem was not on the outside. It wasn't the cleanliness of their skin. It was on the inside. It was the condition of their heart. And Jesus came to reveal that that is what matters to God. But for these Pharisees and teachers of the law that were trying to keep everyone in line and keep track of everything, it's kind of difficult to compare hearts. It's kind of hard for them to identify what people's heart issues were because only God can see that. So instead, they decided to draw up this list of external religious activities and see who came out on top. That was a much easier way for them to manage and regulate their communities. When we are tradition-driven rather than text-driven, we become hypocrites with hearts that are distant from God and his purposes. Again, when we are tradition-driven believers, instead of text-driven, we become hypocrites with hearts that are distant from God and his purposes because we're too focused on what comes out of us in the manner of our behaviors and different things instead of actually what God is doing inside of us, what the heart condition is supposed to be in these moments. <clears throat> now, I'm not saying all traditions are bad. I don't think the example I gave at the beginning of this message, that them cutting a turkey and cooking it in two pans, is a tradition that made their hearts hardened and distant from God. I'm not saying that. I don't think all traditions are bad. But they're bad when they become on the same level as Scripture or take the place of Scripture, which we see here, that they are actually carrying forth the traditions of the elders instead of the Word of God. It's a Bible plus kind of religion. It's a, there's the Bible and this stuff we've added on to it. And if you're adding to the Bible for all practical purpose, you make void the Bible and you nullify its truth and its power in your life. Family, you need to hear that. If you are adding traditions and religious expressions to the Bible that are not from the word, for all practical purposes, you are making the Bible null and void. You are diminishing its truth and its power by thinking that some way in your humanity, you need to add something to it to make it potent enough to govern your life. It is an insult to the infallible word of God if that is the way in which you pursue the word. Man-made rules and regulations become the object of obedience while God's commands get set aside. People can so easily push away the only trustworthy and infallible source of authority. It's an act of pure spiritual suicide. You're just quitting. You're just giving up. It is spiritual suicide to choose tradition over truth. Now, one of the challenges in this is it's so easy for us to see this in others but when it happens to us, we go spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind. We can point out, oh, Pharisee, ah, oh, religious person, right? Oh, they're so prideful. But when it's happening in us, when it's something we're dealing with, it's like, oh, I don't see anything. I don't know anything that's going on. And you're just oblivious to it. You get the largest blind spot in the history of blind spots. And you just keep walking through life, choosing traditions. These traditions and religious rules attempted to address all the symptoms of sin, but they didn't address the issue of sin at its root in our heart. Only truth can do that. Traditions and legislation cannot get rid of this condition of sin that resides in the human heart before Jesus makes it new. And Jesus makes it clear he didn't come to treat these symptoms, but to address the heart problem. 
So the second point here is we don't treat the symptoms of a heart problem. We don't treat that somebody's got a foul mouth when really we need to get down to the heart issue and what's going on. Those may be manifestations that we can start to work on those behaviors and ask God to deliver us from addictions, from pornography, from sexual immorality, from pride, from all these things. Yes, God, please deliver me from those. Redeem those in my life. But those aren't the root issue. The root issue is the condition of sin in our heart that manifests itself in those ways. And if we just try to put a band-aid on all the little cuts, but we don't address the infection, then we have an issue. There's an infection of this condition of sin that we have to get down to. And if we just spend our time trying to modify our behaviors to address all the symptoms, so we look good from the outside, we rot from within. And Jesus is coming to shift how religion, how faith, how his people view these things. Because every human heart has the root of every human sin in it. It's entirely possible to look nice on the outside, but be dead on the inside. It's entirely possible to do that. The most deadly contamination is not what I touch, but rather the most deadly contamination is what's in our hearts. Jesus charges all who have been witnessing this theological debate to pay attention and understand what he's about to say. How many of you all know if Jesus says, hey, listen up. You don't want to miss this. There might be something for us to take there. And it's likely going to be paradigm shifting to the hearer, especially of that time steeped in the culture that they are steeped in. And then he goes on to explain that corruption, defilement, all this, it's not external, but it's internal. And impurity is not a matter of the stomach, but of the heart. Defilement is not what goes in, but what comes out, what overflows from us. And as we mentioned before, these words are revolutionary that Jesus is sharing. He's saying that the real issues of religious and spiritual faith are internal, not external. Because sin always proceeds from within. Takes root inside and manifests out of that. Food is eaten, it's digested in the stomach, and then it's expelled. Sin, however, remains in the heart and produces all kinds of defilement and impurity leading to death. And the basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. Real filth, impurity, and defilement are inside and unseen, but they eventually show themselves, as verses 22 and 23 tell us. Like, yeah, they're inside. You might be able to hide them, but eventually they're going to come out in this list of things. Evil thoughts, pride, all of these things. There's this list of evil, sinful things that defile, that are prideful, that are legalistic, that trump truth with tradition. And these evil actions arise from someone's heart, which is the source of the sin that condemns, it says. So there are basically two approaches to religion that this highlights, each of which can be summed up in one word. I like to keep it simple so I can remember it. Two approaches. Do or done? Which side are you going to take? Do or done? The world says the problem is out there and the solution is to answer the question, what can I do about it? But the Bible says the problem's inside of us and the answer is, what has Christ done? It's not about what you can do, it's about what Christ has done. That is what matters. Because when you have a legalistic perspective, when you're operating out of pride, we think better of ourselves than Jesus does. 
And you may have things going off in your head when I say that. Well, but there's a lot of songs that sing about being a friend of Jesus and he loves us and this and that. And yeah, he also knows that you need saved so much that he had to come die on a cross to accomplish that. When we are legalistic and we think that we just check this box of religious rules and traditions, we end up thinking more of ourselves and our accomplishments than Jesus does. But in salvation, we think the same of ourselves as Jesus does. We're hopeless, helpless sinners in desperate need of, of a savior. And that, that message is really offensive to a lot of people. Have you ever noticed that? If you're trying to share the good news of Jesus with someone and you're like, hey, we're all sinners. We're in desperate need of saving. We need a new king that can help guide us that we can follow. And they're like, excuse me? I actually got this under control just fine. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to share what I believe with someone like, I don't need saved. I'm doing just fine on my own. I say, okay, I'll touch base with you in a year. We'll see how that's going. But in salvation, we think the same of ourselves as Jesus, and we are in desperate need of a Savior. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says this, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, and the Lord looks at the heart. So I ask you today, when the Lord examines your heart, what does he see? Please don't answer out loud. When the Lord examines your heart, what does he see? Does he see a self-righteous legalist trusting in what I do or a humble sinner trusting only in what Jesus has done? What does he see? And the difference between those two things is of eternal significance. It matters. It's not just like a little side thing of this following Jesus deal. It, like, it, it really matters. So when you're processing through this, be honest with yourself. And then ask yourself, what, what traditions, what legalistic religious expressions, what prideful ideals are you allowing, are we allowing to take precedence in our life over the truth of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus? What is it? Because we can get so caught up in these false functions of faith that we don't even see it. And get so caught up, and you know that's just the way it is. And it's been working just fine for me, so why would I change it? You ever heard somebody say that about something they're following that might be a tradition or some religious expression that isn't necessarily rooted in the text, but rooted in tradition? And, well, it's, it's, everything's going fine. God hasn't told me he's frustrated with that. Have you read the Bible? Where is it? Where is it? Talk about that. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Worship team, you can come back up we got to ask ourselves these questions. I believe this is a yet another reminder, another thing that highlights the importance of discipleship and community. If we're not in relationship with others, including others who've been given permission to be honest about how we're living our life or the condition of our heart as they see it, and to be honest about some things that might be hiding in our blind spots, we may find ourselves stuck in these places where our outward expression is disconnected from the heart of God. If we don't invite people in to speak into those places, to, to have honest conversations with us about these things, we insulate ourselves from the voices that actually help reveal what's happening in our blind spots. We insulate ourselves from being able to get input from those that care about us, about some things that we're just not seeing right now. We need relationships that are willing to point these things out from a place of truth and love in order to help us become more like Jesus. 
We need community like this for mutual edification and encouragement, for corporate worship, for general accountability, and for missional expression. But we also need community because it requires sacrifice. And nothing shields us from pride like selfless sacrifice for the sake of those around us. Amen? Nothing will break down those prideful, legalistic expressions like caring more about somebody else than yourself. The things we need aren't all because they're simply easy or self-serving. We need a balance of things that build us up and encourage us and things that challenge us and call us to something greater than ourselves in the form of outward sacrificial expression. In our opening illustration, generations of people held to a tradition that was birthed out of lack and needing to find a way to get by and cope and just finding a way to to make things work. I would urge you today to stop holding on to traditions and legalistic religious expressions that indicate the lack of grace and the love of Jesus in your life. Don't live your life out of a place of being poor in the kingdom of Jesus and viewing it as I just have to do this because I have this lack and I gotta find a way to make it work and bootstrap it on my own and I just gotta make things happen because you have been given grace and mercy and love and abundance through Jesus and his work on the cross. We don't have to live out of a place of wondering if that is for us or if, if we are enough because Jesus has considered us enough in his work. Live out of the truth that Jesus is enough. His word is enough. And there is nothing that you need to add to or protect yourself from in all the matters concerning serving and following Jesus. Don't hold on to these traditions out of a fear of what it may look like to surrender those parts of your life to Jesus. He's worthy. You can trust him. He loves you. He cares about you. And in him and in the family of God, you lack nothing. You lack nothing. When I say that, we have this pre-existing idea of what it looks like to lack nothing here on earth. That's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't mean a super cushioned checking account and a mansion on the hill or whatever else it is. What it means is you lack nothing that is of eternal significance. You lack nothing in order to accomplish what God has called you to accomplish any given day of the week because he is with you, he has called you, he loves you, and his truth and love is enough. That's what it means. So today is a truth-based way of remembering this work of Jesus, and it's significant in our lives. We're going to take communion together. I can't think of much better way to come together as a family and say, yep, Jesus, you're enough. And I am humbled and grateful for your work on the cross and what it means for me and the life that I get to live as an expression of that. <clears throat> While I read through this scripture, if you want to find a cup on your table, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this 
whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's go ahead and peel back that first layer. And let's take this in remembrance of Jesus' body that was broken for us. Go ahead and peel back the second layer. And we take this juice, remembering the new covenant in Jesus, remembering the sacrifice that was paid for us to be in right standing with our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the price you paid for us to be in your family. For this gathering that we call church to be called your bride, to be an outward expression of you still living on mission through your Holy Spirit today on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you for that. We pray that you would help us to peel away, to purify anything that we may be doing out of tradition and not out of truth. We pray that you would help us to identify any ways in which we're addressing symptoms and outward manifestations as the the end game and not addressing the heart issue and how you want to transform us from the inside out. God, if it's been a while since we've received that or experienced that from you, would you give us that new heart? Would you fill us with your presence? Would you bring restoration in all the way or all the places that maybe we felt beaten down and discouraged? Would you fill us with your hope, your joy, and your peace? We thank you for this time. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.